special thanks to the church choir this morning for rendering unto us music of elevation and encouragement. And I think we ought to give them another hand of praise for doing such a wonderful job. <clears throat> Thank you, of course, for your special rendition earlier. And certainly this hymn of preparation was quite inspirational as well. I want to also thank each of you who were kind enough to show up this past Tuesday at the government center as I was there to represent African-American churches in Fairfax County for the county's proclamation and recognizing the African-American month. Thank you for your support and I want to say a special thanks to Terry Henderson and Emma Marshall who worked so hard in the county to keep us surprised of what we need to know and to keep our presence in the forefront when their efforts behind the scene to suppress us. But they work hard to make sure we are well known. I want to give them some thank you this <clears throat> Special thanks to each of you on yesterday who was kind in showing your graciousness and going to Leesburg and supporting Brother Alvin Coates and the homegoing of his father. Thank you, Mail Corps, for doing a wonderful job, excellent job. And thank you, parishioners, for showing up to give you, give him your support as well. I'm certain I speak with truth on his behalf. He greatly appreciates seeing his Zion family. Thank you again. The Lord has a word for us in John's Gospel, chapter 5. And I want to read the first nine verses of that passage, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 1 through 9. My, my gratitude also to Reverend Dr. George, who preached in my space on last Sunday. I understand he rocked the house, so. So I hope my job is anchored, I don't know. But they told me he brought a word, and that's all that he needed to do. John's Gospel, chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> After these things, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in the Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticles. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season's into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which they were afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to the man, arise, take up your pallet and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. <clears throat> In
in the sermon outline that's provided in the bulletin at the top of that page, I've provided what I consider to be this Sunday's wealth principle. And that principle is this. It's centered around the theme of choice as this narrative in John's gospel likewise. You can choose to think in ways that will support you in your happiness and success instead of ways that don't. The choice is entirely yours. In our previous conversation regarding God's harvest law, <clears throat> I talked about principles that I hope took some root in your mind and heart and perhaps you have wrestled with them as the week and weeks have progressed. I talked about the principle of investment because as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 9, we are creatures who are beneficiaries of sowing and reaping. And because that principle is set in motion by God's provision, we in return sow some seeds. And as a result of the sowing those seeds, we reap whatever we sow. That's the principle of investment. You can't get a return until you've been willing to invest something in its initial stage. Paul says that all of us have a measure of faith, arguably a seed of faith, that's waiting to be activated as Jesus declares to us in Mark 4. It only needs the right soil. And when it is planted in the right soil, it reaps 30-fold, 60-fold, 90-fold, 100-fold. We reap what we sow. You invest in evil, you get back evil. <clears throat> you invest in good, you get back good. There's also what I call the principle of identity. And the principle of identity says you reap what you sow. So if you decide to sow gossip, then you probably are going to get gossip back. You decide to be a hope sower, you're going to get hope back. You decide to be an encourager sower, you get encouragement back. We reap whatever we sow. That's the investment of identity because you can't plant peanuts and have an expectation that you're going to get oranges in return. It just doesn't, doesn't work like that. And the focus is your seed, whatever seed that's going to be, wherever you throw it out, might I parenthetically say your words are likewise seeds and when we throw them out they bring back whatever those words encompass by way of meaning so if I throw out negativity I'm going to reap that same kind of verbiage back to me on the journey it's called identity but there's also the principle of increase, which means that if I'm willing to sow and know that the seed that I sow will yield the exactness of what I'm sowing, in due time, increase is going to come. And increase provides for me the encouragement to sow more seeds. Maybe some of our challenges at what we're sowing, we haven't seen much of a return, and as a result, we don't sow anymore. But we're going to talk about that today because sometimes seeds take time. More time than what we bargain for. 
and you don't instantaneously get back, it's a time frame in which sowing and reaping operates. That leads to the fourth point that I talked about, and I'm going to talk about again this day, but just in an expanded version. That's the principle of interval, time. The one thing that never changes, time. The one element in human existence that has a strange way and almost a dichotomy in which its language is conveyed on the one hand in the early morning of our years, it provides for us inspiration and hope that the future is bright in time. And then somewhere in midstream, as we move toward the evening of our years, it likewise reminds us that that time is not only lessened, but it's coming close to its conclusion. Not time in general, but time for you and I. It allows us to recognize that finality is somewhere in the atmosphere, but we don't know particularly where it is, but you can rest for sure that time conveys signs that it's out there. Where I used to could run, now I must walk. Where I once jumped, now I must step down. Where there was once no pain, there is consistency of a variety of pains. When I once could get up and jump out of the bed and then just get going now, there is an interval of time where I've got to sit and wait. <clears throat> you know, I got to tell the joints, it's time to wake up, let's... Let's get going. Uh, if you sleep the wrong way, I gotta tell my neck that we, we gotta get going. They're just things to time. And time reminds me that the once flexibility and elasticity that I once held no longer is existing. It's demising. Now, sometimes time is kinder to others more than others. I see people that I grew up with and time hasn't been so kind. They look as if their journey has been in the storm so long. Then there are others who are in the late evening of their years, in their 80s, and don't look a day past 60. We can argue that that might be some form of genetics, but it's also time. Time is kind enough. Time for us is a strange thing, and I said it may be a bit of a dichotomy because in one hand it seems to treat us so great and then on the other hand it seems to pressure us and to let us know that we don't have as much time as we thought were allotted. But time generally revolves around a pause, a break, a pause and a break and a space between sowing and reaping. We, we understand time in our own context in terms of seconds and minutes and hours and days and months and years. We also recognize that there are synonyms about time, synonyms like um, meantime or in the meantime. There's a gap. And time also seems to have different interpretations in different disciplines. For example, in math, when we talk about a time or interval, we talk about a range of numbers between two given numbers, one, 10, and that range that falls in between. When we talk about time interval, 
by way of music theory, we talk about that sound, that difference between the two pitches that one hears in their ear. When we talk about science, we talk about how time is defined by the ratio between two sonic frequencies. Time is never seen the same, but yet time is the same. It doesn't really change. And in the life of God's economy, in his harvest law, the time between sowing and reaping, between the beginning and the end, that's that season that we struggle with, which in between believing and celebration. And it's a struggle because it's that believing season where God is working to strengthen us, to encourage us, and to help us dig our heels deeper into the foundation of his word. And it brings to life the suggestive nature of what time does in an experience, says Paul in Romans 5, and how time seems to teach us about patience and patience working perseverance and perseverance working out trust and trust deepening independency. It's that spirit, it's that period in which God is stretching us between the initial belief and my expectation of the reaping and it's where God puts me on God's time frame. And God's time frame never works like mine. Because my time frame says if I sow today by 12 tonight, I'm looking for the harvest to come out of the ground. And God's time frame says you might sow tonight, but it might be another year, two or three before you actually see the harvest. And it challenges me to believe, am I going to trust that the God who gave me the seed is the still same God who's going to supply the water that I need to keep irrigating the seed so that if I hold out and hold on, something's going to happen at the end of the journey. It's John in telling us about this story that points to a man's life who knew about time. You, you, can't, you can't read this story and, get con and not get connected to the word of time because this man understood two things. What it means to wait and what it means to miss your season or what it means to wait and have to wait again for the season to come around that you might experience what you had been looking for. This, this man understood what it meant to believe that in the meantime, what do I do when I've sown and now I've got to wait until I begin to reap? How do I hang out? How do I hold on? How do I persevere? How do I keep on keeping on in the name of the Lord? And what's fascinating about this story is that the very two verses that I want to highlight are two verses that are absent in the Greek text. They are not even in the original text, verse 3 and verse 4. They are nowhere to be found. Yet, editors put these two verses in here to help bring us some clarification as to what this story might very well mean. Some scholars that that the editors added the story because in verse four, there is the use of the word stirring. And there's an attempt by the editor to help us understand what was John trying to convey when he talked about waters being stirred. There's a myth mythological kind of idea to believe that every now and then an angel came down from heaven and stirred up these waters and in stirring up these waters, whoever stepped in would receive their healing. No evidence of it, no proof of it, but it was a belief by the people that if they were there in time and on time, that God would bring about the healing 
because they've sown into the water by way of time and their reaping would be some divine healing. Something amazing to notice about what the text says. It says that we are in this space called Bethesda. Now watch this. The name of the space means the house of mercy and the house of outpouring. Doesn't mean much to you now, but watch as the story unfold, you'll see why it means such a critical piece to those who were there. And while they are there, they are stretched among five different sections of the space of the pool, and there is porticos, and those porticos are what we would call uh, shades or overhangs to keep them protected from the elements, which says to me, that no matter how long they had to wait in terms of time, they kept on coming back. They kept on rain, shine, snow, whatever. We keep on coming back because there's an expectation that something is going to happen if I sow into coming to this place every single time. Something's going to happen. I'm going to reap at some point in time, but in the meantime, I can't stop coming and I can't stop sowing and I can't stop believing and I can't stop hoping and I can't stop trusting and I can't stop expecting. I got to keep on pushing in the language of Job until my change comes. And as they kept on doing that, notice text says to me that they obviously had to keep on preparing. Can you imagine? Every morning they had to prepare to go back to this same portal, this same pool every single day with the same expectation. At the end of the day nothing happened. They had to turn around and go back home, then turn around and come back the next morning. They kept on preparing, which might be a strong suggestion to us that I know you haven't seen the miracle come about. I know you haven't seen the answered prayer yet, but keep on sowing and coming to the altar every single morning and just trusting that in God's due time, something's going to happen, something's going to change. I'm going to reap what I sow, but prepare yourself every single day. That's what the text suggests to me that they did. They prepared every morning. But then in preparing, they positioned themselves when they got there. I get that because the man says that every time I want to get in, somebody else repositions and get themselves ahead of me and I can never get there. Which says to me that they realize that the early bird really does get the worm. Maybe they understood that if I position myself to get there and in positioning, I do what I have to do to make sure that I'm in the position to receive the blessing because that answers Jesus' question to the man, do you really want to get well? And maybe we are in a state of our own journey where God is trying to tell us, I don't mind blessing you, but my problem is you're not in position. You won't pray, you won't confess, you won't believe, you won't read the word, you won't celebrate, you won't believe by faith, you won't praise in advance. You just simply sow without any expectation at all and that tells me you can't throw a seed in the ground and don't expect something. You got to believe that something is going to come out and you got to position yourself to receive. And that's what they did. They prepared every day, every day. They positioned themselves every day. And then they persevered. Can you imagine going there, missing that opportunity again to get into the water, having to go back home and turn around and come back the next day and do this consistently in the case of this man, says verse 5, for 38 years. I'm talking about time. For 38 years, this is what he did. He prepared himself, he positioned himself, but people beat him to the punch, but he kept on persevering. 38 years. That reminds me of my ancestors who kept on persevering. 
They prepared themselves every morning knowing they were going out to the fields to, to pick cotton and to pick corn and to do whatever they had to do as slaves, but yet they kept on positioning themselves believing that someday there's going to be a bright side somewhere and I cannot rest until I find it. They believed that someday this kind of atmosphere will not exist and because they positioned and persevered I know they persevered because I'm certain that there were times when they wanted to rise up and enter into a revolt but they recognized if I revolt I'm not only the one who's going to suffer pain but others in the field may suffer pain as well so I gotta persevere along with them so that we can endure this thing until salvation comes to our house the Bible says that Jesus recognized this man who for 38 years do you realize how long that is 38 years that's longer than many people live and we know that he suffered from some disability that was a result arguably of some sinful act that he did because if you read verse 14 when Jesus later when he heals him sees him in the temple he tells him whatever you do you you became well now don't sin anymore maybe something he had done that caused his disability and he was reminded of it for 38 years and his inability to get where he wanted to be. Maybe that's where you and I sit. Something that we did years ago is still hindering us, hampering us from grasping what we know is right before us. And Jesus says, I want to know because you've got this issue in your background is that going to be the issue that keeps you from reaping what you're now trying to sow are you going to let it stop you from preparing every day to receive your blessing are you going to permit it to cause you to not position yourself to receive what God already has in store are you going to allow it to hinder your perseverance even though you don't see it right now? It's the faith that's the such which is hoped for and the evidence of that which is not seen. And what's amazing about this story is that when Jesus sees this man, he knows in the supernatural that the man has had a frustration with time. He knows that. And he asked him, how long do you want to stay like this? Seems to me after 38 years that you, you've had enough time in that condition. And I want to ask you, how long do you want to stay where you are? Are you tired of that? Are you tired of missing what you know you can get? Are you tired of missing where you know you where you can be? Are you tired of receiving what you know you can labor for and can get? Aren't you tired of being passed over and being pushed aside and having others beat you to the point? Aren't you tired of that? Jesus asked the man, do you... Do you really want to get well? Because the man, says verse 3, had been waiting. And then in verse 4, he had been waiting for the stirring of the water for the season. Time. Dealing with time. And Jesus says he's been a long time, verse 6, in this condition. Do you want to get well I want to ask is it do you have to wait for the season or is the season waiting on you because to me there's something about pursuing 
Uh, I'll use this analogy in 1 Samuel chapter 31, or chapter 30 and 31, I believe it is, when David loses all that he has to the Amalekites and he can wait for another season to gain it. But David goes to God and says, what should I do? And God says, what should you do? Pursue. Pursue the Amalekites and get back everything you've lost. Why? Because it's not later. Now is your season. But wait a minute. What if God has not ordained for me to do it now? Oh, he has. It's just a matter of if you are prepared and if you have positioned and if you are willing to persevere until God gets you in that space where you begin to reap what you have sown. But that's like the man who's saying, I need a job, but I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to sow by way of faith without action. And James says, faith without works is dead. So I, I just need to know do you got to wait for a season? Or can you pursue a season? Because the text says that this man obviously was expecting for an angel to come down and stir up the waters. And in stirring up the waters, there was a certain season all the time in which that happened. But the question became, when was that season? And wow, for 38 years, I, I'm, I mean, I'm just saying, you missed a whole lot of seasons. But he said, I want to I, I wanna do it, but I, every, every time I try, somebody beat me to the punch. I want to say what Jesus did not say, but I just want to think that he said this. Uh, are, they, are they really beating you? Or are you beating yourself? I mean, you right here at the pool, it seemed like to me, if you can't walk in, drag yourself in, crawl in, find some way to get in there. And if I have to fall in there and wait for the season to get hot again, I'm going to get in there because I want my season right now. Why is that important? Because I'm right there at the house of mercy. I'm right there at the house of outpouring. I'm right here where I need to be so that God can do something tremendous in my life. And here's going to freak you out. This is my point. I'm going to make it going to freak you out that I'm out of here. Listen to this. Watch this story closely because if you listen to preachers today who don't really have any sound exegetical principles in their preaching, that's the reason why they can't catch this, they tell you that you have to have faith to be healed. Now, I'm not knocking that. Look at the story. Where's the man's faith at in the story? Because I'll take you through several passages. You can read Matthew 8, 14 through 15. You can read Matthew 9, 32 to 33. You can read Matthew 12, 10 to 13. You can read Mark 7, 32 to 33. None of them had faith. What happened was when Jesus saw them in their condition, read this story closely, he fixed it. Fix it, Jesus, fix it like you said you would. But wait a minute. We'll quickly tell him that. You got to have a faith to believe. Watch this. God knows that right now in the spiritual space that you are, you may not have the faith. But that's not going to cause you to miss out on the blessing that God has. How do I know that? Tell me, how do you know that, preacher? Because this man didn't even know who Jesus was. Read the text. It's right here in the text. Look at what verse four, uh, 15 says. Or maybe verse 13, verse 12. They ask him, who is the man who said this to you? Take up your pallet and walk. And the man says, but he who healed me did not know who it was. Wait a minute. How you going to have faith in somebody you don't even know who they are? So look what Jesus did. Jesus knew that the man had 
to be made well in order to move in a new direction in his life. And I'm trying to rationalize and tell you, sometimes God already knows you don't even have the faith, but I'm going to bless you anyhow. And if we are wise enough to be honest, there's a whole lot of blessings we got in our background that we had no faith at all in believing and God made a way anyhow. God opened the door anyhow. God made it possible for me anyhow and I had absolutely no faith at all and he was just trying to tell me, trust me, I know you don't have the faith right now but I'm going to make a way for you so later on you won't know. Here it is right here in the story. The Bible says right here in the text that Jesus knew this man. He knew the man needed to be made well and asked him, do you want to be made well? And the man came back in verse 7, sir, every time I'm trying to get there to wholeness, somebody beat me to the punch. Notice Jesus' response. We're not going to rationalize and talk about this. We're not going to debate whether or not you really could have got there. But Jesus says that's not even the issue. Right now, you need healing. And look at what the text says. Jesus said, verse 8, three imperative verbs. Arise, pick up, and walk. And look at what verse 9 says. Just two words, and immediately. Wait a minute, where was his faith? Didn't need it. Didn't need it at that moment. Because Jesus already knew that the man didn't have it because he didn't know who he was. But the man needed healing. Now why is this important? Some scholars say that the man's 38 years is an interesting time because it seems to parallel with Deuteronomy chapter 2 and verse 14 where the Israelites hung out in the wilderness for 38 years. But here's the clincher. When you read verse 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 2, the clincher hinges around one word that's used. It says, now the time, here we go, time, that it took for us to come from Kadesh Barnea until we crossed over the brook Shered. The brook Shered. The brook Shered. Why is that important? We need to cross it, which was 38 years, until all the generation of the men of war perish from within the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. Watch this. God told the entire generation all y'all gonna die because you wouldn't believe in what I was doing except Joshua and Caleb. You wouldn't believe my promise so you're gonna die. So you're gonna hang out in this space for 38 years. Now why is that important? Because Zareth is an interesting space. Watch this. The word itself belongs to a Hebrew root, na'al, which denotes an elongated geographical space that's dry and empty. But it also belongs to an Aramaic term that suggests this is where luxurious trees grow. How do you grow in the desert? How do you grow in the wilderness? And could it be that this man's condition remained where it was for 38 years because he needed to purge some stuff out of his life? And he couldn't get to where he needed to get to because not only was he dragging his disability, but he was dragging a boatload of other issues that kept him from getting the freedom that he desired. Maybe the reason why your season hadn't came yet or you hadn't got your deliverance is because you dragging a whole lot of extra stuff that you need to let go of. Let them go, cut them loose. 
Tell them this is it. This is the last day. Can't have you any longer. You too much of a burden. You holding me down. I want to get to where I need to be, but I got to dump this load. In that 38-year span, while Israel's in the wilderness, God was purging them until there was no one left but Joshua and Caleb. And then a new generation rose up, and they walked into Canaan. And maybe God is trying to tell us, y'all still holding on to stuff that you've been holding on to for the last 38 years. You still got some folk that you mad at 38 years ago and you won't let it go. I know they wronged you, but that's 38 years ago. Get over it. Move on. Settle it however you got to settle in your mind. But if you let it settle in you, it's going to control you. And when it controls you, it will keep you from going ahead. It's almost like forgiveness. You tell somebody, I forgive you. And I don't mind you telling them I won't forget. I don't expect for you to forget. That's the reason why your brain has a compartment called memory. You got memory so you don't repeat the same hurt again. But forgiveness means I'm cutting you loose because you're too much of a burden for me to carry around and cause me to miss my blessing. And listen, you look at the book of Job and you read from Job 1 all the way to Job 42 and not until we get to 42, God says, look, I want you to pray for them four friends of yours who dogged you out in this whole process of why you were going through what you're going through. I can see Job now, what? Do say what? Pray. Pray for them for what? And read chapter 42. It says that God didn't bless Job until Job prayed for his friends. And when Job prayed for his friends, God gave him back double. But he had to keep preparing every day. He had to keep positioning himself every day. He had to keep persevering through all of chapter 1 all the way down to chapter 41. And not until he got to chapter 42 did he realize God was working some things out. In fact, he had an argument with God and told God, if I could bring you into court, I'd let you know how bad I feel about this thing. And then God told Joe, well, let's go to court then. If you think you can beat me in court, let's go to court. And when God got finished with Job, Job said, tell you what, I, I, I object, don't say nothing, I'm done, I agree you to God, just get this burden off of my life. And some of us never get victory because you still carrying around stuff from 38 years ago. And every time God brings you to the house of mercy, and the house of outpouring, you never get it because somebody beat you to the punch. Why? Because they've said, Lord, I don't care how bad they've hurt me. I'll take your forgiveness as you forgive me and I'm going to set them free. Whatever the issue is, they were willing to let it go and move on for the kingdom of God. And the Bible says immediately, this man was made whole. How in the world does God make you in a dry place? How does he make you where there's no water, there's no provision, there's no sustenance to keep you alive? Very easy. Rise, pick up, and walk on. Rise from the ashes. I know you're broken. I'm I know you're disappointed. I, I know your heart is still aching. Rise. Rise with the strength of God. Because here's a principle. If you keep on cultivating the seed, God will give you the water to irrigate the seed. You just keep doing what you got to do to make your life grow and to make your relationship with the Lord stronger and God will keep on giving you the water that will give the increase because when you rise from the ashes 
folk will look at you and say you look absolutely nothing like you just came through. And you tell them, I know that's, that's what the house of mercy will do for you and that's what the house of outpouring will do for you. Pick up your bed. Pick up your pallet. Stop laying around where healing is and start getting in where healing is. And then Jesus told the man, walk. Walk? I have walked in 38 years. How am I going to walk now? For we walk by faith and not by sight. Walk. Jesus knew, here it is, Jesus knew that the man, the man would argue, Jesus, my problem is I don't have the opportunity to get healed. No, Jesus says, no, you're not exercising the choice of will to get healed. See, that's the difference. Opportunity is all around us. But do I have the will to fight through the racism, to fight through the sexism, to fight through the misogyny? Do I have the will to stand on my two feet and on the shoulders of those who took the blunt of others' oppression that I might live in a state of abundance? Do I have the will to speak truth to power, to let them know? You know, I, told him Tuesday, you know, I had a hard time doing this thing Tuesday. They gave me three minutes to speak. I, I, I couldn't even, uh, I don't think I was up there 30 seconds. That's a shock to some of y'all, I'm certain. But I couldn't tell him what I wanted to tell him, what I wanted to say. Uh, and I'll tell you because a friend called me earlier and says, now Murphy, now I know you, I know I know, I know how radical you are. Do me a favor. Don't say anything radical. And here's the reason why. Remember, whatever you say, some of your members going to be there. And they work there. And they're going to have to work after you leave. <laughs> Don't put them in that position. I know, I know, I know you. I know what you want to say. But don't do that. Watch this. Final words. There's a time and a place for what you want to say. But Tuesday ain't the time. I told them I don't see why not. They're going to give me three minutes to talk. You know, I can say a whole lot in three minutes. Murphy, your parishioners are going to have to leave, are going to have to work in that building after you leave. There's a time and there's a place for what you want to say. Tuesday is not the time. Well, what should I say? Be grateful. Say something nice. With all that knowledge you got, you can't find nothing in that brain of yours to say something nice. Yeah, but it will come in the framework of a lot of other stuff. Then he said, bye. <laughs> Tell me how it worked out when you leave Tuesday. So Miss Marshall and Miss Henry's going to testify. You see anything bad, did I? I said everything nice. I received the proclamation on behalf of all the churches and I even extended the olive branch if there's a chance in which there's a moment in which we can collaborate between church and county, let's do so. And I walked back out to my car, they don't know this, and I sat there for about five minutes and said to myself, wow. <laughs> now the right side of me said, good job. The left side of me said, that ain't really what you wanted to say, was it? And I asked the left side, no, you know what I want to say, don't you? I know exactly what you, if I were you, I'd go back in there 
and the right side said, don't be stupid, let's go home. Why? Because I didn't even know it, but I found out later on, that was a moment in which I was standing as a representation of the outpouring of mercy. I didn't know it. I didn't know because someone told me later that no one had ever, an African-American pastor stood and expressed an olive branch that we could collaborate between church and county. And I said to myself, man, how close I came. Well, I really didn't. I really wasn't going to say anything bad. I really wasn't because I was respecting my, my parishioners. I wasn't going to say anything bad. I really wasn't. I had already got to 411 not to do anything crazy. Those things, I didn't want to go to jail. It's a bad thing to have. Pastor, African-American pastor, jailed for assault. Something stupid like that. I so in the words of this man, as Jesus heals this man, he's healed because he's at the space of the house of mercy. Why does God want to put you in your season? Because you're portable. You move around. And mercy is not just restricted in the house of God. Mercy is expanded in the people of God. And wherever you go, somebody else may be waiting in their space for a long period of time. They've been trying to get into the pool of life, but somebody else beats them to the punch. They need you and I to say, be healed in the name of Jesus. Rise, take up your bed, Somebody might be in this church today. Somebody is all over the world. There is somebody who is in need of hearing. Rise. Take up your bed and walk. The bed doesn't have to be a pallet in which they sleep on. The bed could be a malady in which they deal with. We Christians have, we believe, we proclaim, we tell people, the words of God we have life let's tell it but let's live it remember I told you many weeks ago you are the light of the world Jesus says you don't take a candle and put it under a bushel but you set it on top of a hill God wants you to illuminate for him everywhere that you go so that you can help bring someone to their space of healing. Consecrate this moment, O oh God, that salvation may be